This is Tide Tide Sea by Media Hall on Archive of Our Own. Disclaimer, I did not write or knew, nor do I own the copyright material to this fanfiction. I'm just reading it. Chapter 1 And I wish I could leave my bones and my skin and float over the tired tide sea so that I could see you again. Words by Gregory Allen Isakov The wind howls early in the morning, a comforting lullaby for a man who has lived on Fair Isle for almost a decade. Where some would be awakened by the sound of birds chirping, Louis Tomlinson's eyelids flutter open at the wailing harmony of the wind and sea. Not quite a storm, not yet, but the end of October always brings forth more temperamental weather, like nature slowly preparing herself for the difficult winter months to come. Louis shivers a little as he brings his comforter closer up to his shoulder, hiding his neck under the covers. Most of the B&B's windows are closed. The one in his room certainly is, but the wind's whistling can be heard so clearly, an impatient and demanding companion that can never fully be ignored. Louis sighs, reaching blindly under his pillow with one hand until he feels the shape of his phone. He turns it on, blinking quickly as his eyes adjust to the sudden brightness. He doesn't actually need to turn the phone on to know it's half past five. There are no clocks in his bedroom, but his body is so accustomed to the routine he's cultivated for years that it's basically a given. Louis always smirks when the phone confirms his suspicion, but it lasts a second when he notices that it's only at 40%. He'll have to wait until 7 o'clock to charge it, considering that's when the power comes on the island every morning. Louis inhales slowly, and lets out a deep sigh before putting the phone away. He always prefers a higher percentage when he gets up. Most days, music in his ears is the only thing that makes his morning job bearable. The thought of it dying right in the middle is less than optimal. Still, there's nothing he can do but pray his old iPhone won't be a dick today, which, knowing how battery draining the device finds literally every single operation, seems unlikely. Speaking of his morning ritual, Louis half smiles when he hears a small clatter right outside of his bedroom, followed by a loud whine. Clifford certainly knows the routine just as well as Louis's body does, and he's already nosing at the door in anticipation, nails clinking against the bottom. Louis usually rarely sleeps with the door closed, because Cliff doesn't like being alone at night almost as much as his master, but he suspects a strong gust of wind from a forgotten open window must have forced it shut, locking his dog outside. Just as the thought enters Louis's brain, Clifford lets out a louder whine. Kate, Louis mumbles himself with a raspy voice. Time to get up. It's a matter of urgency now, considering he needs to walk the dog and jog in the process, even though his body loathes the idea of keeping fit. Then shower before the guests start waking up and demanding breakfast from him. Luckily, there's only one room currently occupied at the South Lighthouse B&B, a married couple in their mixed-sixties who, braver than most, book time off on Fair Isle late in the autumn. The establishment is usually eerily empty this late in the season, Tourists somehow not eager to spend their winter on a cold, practically deserted island further up north than necessary and subjected to the harsh weather. Louis, who has witnessed more than one visitor end up trapped for days after their planned departure date because of violent storms, can't really blame them. Money is always tight in the winter though, so he can't say he doesn't appreciate Mr and Mrs Jackson's late holiday. It wouldn't be the end of the world if he served them breakfast late. Their understanding brunch and their ferry back to the mainland only leaves in the afternoon, so they wouldn't mind a late checkout. 
but Louis prides himself on the quality of service in his establishment, which means he serves breakfast every day between half past eight and ten o'clock. No delays, no exceptions. He pushes the duvet off his body, fighting his strong instinct to stay curled up and warm, and then he shivers as he makes his way down to the ladder of his single bed. He's been teased mercilessly and often by his army of siblings for essentially being an adult with a bunk bed, but the old lighthouse keeper's accommodation was always the most logical choice for his permanent resident. It's the smallest bedroom on site, first of all, cramped and mostly uncomfortable, with nothing but the bed, a dresser, and a small window to fill it. It was built to be functional rather than comfortable. Supposes he could charge for the experience, what with the fact that the room is almost identical to what it looked like when the last lighthouse keeper lived here. The man in charge of guiding ship's home lived in what resembles more of a ship's cabin than a room while his family lived in the much more comfortable cottage next door. Now, there's an annex joining the two buildings for the guest convenience, meaning that they can walk from the B&B's main building to the tower to cuddle up in the reading nook and the lantern room on the top of the lighthouse without having to face Farrell's windy weather. The corridor joining the two buildings is drafty though, making Louis's bedroom cold and uncomfortable even on the warmest of summer days. Louis could never, in good conscience, charge money for people to stay there. It was always going to be his own, as depressing as it might be, and Louis quickly started mentally referring to it as a tiny loft of sorts, with his bed as the only thing on the second floor, just to make it less unbearable. Although truth be told, Louis prefers to be close to the tower, even if his responsibilities don't involve it the way his predecessors did. It's just nice to be out the way, he supposes. When his home is full of strangers for half the year and when the B&B is empty, Louis can go straight from his bed to the top of the lighthouse in one minute to enjoy the view. It's pretty amazing, considering. Louis doesn't spend a lot of time in the reading nook up there when the beam is full of tourists, but during winter, when the island grows quiet and still, and the 60 people who inhabit it permanently the only souls on board, Louis rarely spends an evening anywhere else. He's climbed off the ladder, Louis goes to the window, automatically pushing the curtains open even though he knows the sun isn't up yet. He frowns at the still dark sky, the hint of freezing sea barely visible in the distance, though Louis here can hear its temptuous presence, to think winter hasn't even arrived yet. He signs, taking his hoodie off in one movement before throwing it on his bed, nodding with self-satisfaction when it learns perfectly. He regrets the action immediately when the air hits his naked skin. Dresser under his bed, pressed against the red brick wall, grabbing the torch on top of it and clicking it on before opening a drawer. He swears under his breath as he looks through the drawer, quickly setting for a black long-sleeved tea and dropping the torch into the middle of the rest of his clothes to put it on as fast as possible. Then he takes up the sweatpants he usually wears to bed in order to swap them for almost another identical pair that's freshly washed. He's too lazy to change out of the grey wool socks he wore for bed, so he simply raises them over the bottom of his trousers before slipping and trainers on and making his way to the tiny ensuite attached to his room. Toilet, sink, and the smallest cubicle known to man. It's not great, but it gets the job done, Louis thinks, as he brushes his teeth awkwardly. He bounces the torch awkwardly on top of the toilet, which means only half of his face is illuminated, making him look even more exhausted than he actually is. He takes a second to grimace at himself in the mirror once he's done brushing his teeth, wrinkling his nose at the reflection as he rubs the palm of his hand against his auburn beard. Lottie would definitely say he's in need of a trim, might even chase him around their mother's house with a pair of scissors if she could see him like this. She'd probably have something to say about moisturising too, but Louis kind of enjoys his dishevelled look. Louis exits the bathroom, placing the torch off and putting it back in its place before climbing back to his bed to grab his phone. 
Finally, after what Clifford probably feels was an eternity, though it was only five minutes, Louis steps out of his bedroom and into the waiting paws of his gigantic dog, who, of course, attempts to climb him the minute the door opens. Morning, Cliff, Louis says with a laugh, stumbling a little under the weight. He buries his hands in the fur on both sides of Clifford's neck, giving his dog a big push before pushing him off eventually. Go on, get off me, you big brute, he's teasing in what he'd never admit is a babying voice. Yeah, you know we're going on a walk, no need to be so dramatic, boyo, he adds when Cliff tries to jump on him again. He pushes past the dog, successfully stopping him from jumping again, then turns right, walking straight past the spiral staircase that leads up to the top of the repurposed tower until he reaches what used to be the front door in the 19th century. Now the door only leads to the annex of the cottage, helping Louis and the guests avoid the worst of the Scottish weather. He shivers as soon as the door opens and he steps into the corridor, the space so poorly insulated that he might as well be walking outside. Clifford walks past him easily, knowing exactly where he wants to go and leading the way, clearly unbothered by the sudden change in temperature. In all fairness, Louis is still half asleep, eyes squinting and half shut as he follows his dog to the cottage. He's always been more sensitive than most of the cold, something most members of his family, especially his mother, love to tease him mercilessly about when he ever dares complain about the cold so far up north. It was a bit of a strange choice for him to settle here. Louis will admit to that. But as he walks into the shared living room space to grab his denim jacket and Clifford's leash from the wooden coat rack nestled in the corner of the room, he catches sight of the sea beyond the cliffs through the shadows that he's lucky enough to call home. Louis can't help but think he'd rather die than be anywhere else. His sensitivity to cold temperatures be damned. Clifford wiggles his tail at the sight of his leash, even though Louis never really put it on him and he owns it more as a precaution than anything else. They both exit the living room. Louis puts his jacket on just before they reach the front door and he takes a second to double check his coat pocket for plastic bags and his headphones. Once he's confirmed that he's in possession of both of them, Louis puts the headphones on and presses play on his morning run playlist, opening the door and letting Clifford get a head start before starting to jog behind him, following the curves of the cliff. Twenty minutes later, Louis stops running and he and his dog carefully walk down the thin, uneven path to reach the beach at the bottom of the cliff. Clifford starts happily running into the water as soon as his paws hit the sand, and Louis can't help but chuckle him at the sight that escapes him. Every morning is the same. Louis doesn't start jogging again, walking slowly on the beach and appreciating the view. It's still dark, but there's still a hint of light on the horizon, the beginning of the day almost there to for Louis to witness. The cliffs look impressive, even more so in the dark. Louis thinks vaguely as he looks back. They look threatening like sleeping giants protecting their coast. Dormant, tranquil, but still deadly if needed. Louis loves them at best when they're shrouded in shadows like this, one breath away from dawn or when the night starts to creep in. Clifford huffs excitedly, forcing Louis to look forward again, and he smiles when he sees the branch he's carrying. Louis grabs it, easily throwing before walking again. The music changes to a melancholic song one of his sisters probably recommended to him, the deep voice sad and longing. It's a song made for the darkness, for moments before the world fully wakes, for the comfortable loneliness associated with them. Louis exhales, putting both his hands into jacket pockets and enjoys the empty beat. Soon enough, Louis and Clifford need to start making their way back to the B&B. They've walked a lot further away on the beach than Louis usually ventures, and a quick look at his phone informs him that it's almost half past six. He needs to get back quickly if he wants to have time to shower before Mr and Mrs Jackson wake up. 
It's always a difficult balance to strike since there's no hot water before seven and Louis isn't particularly fond of freezing showers. He isn't particularly fond of freezing anything, no matter how fast they are. He has it almost down to an art by now, though, even if he does get distracted by the beautiful scenery in his dog's excitement once in a while. By the time he's back at the lighthouse, it's only a quarter past seven and Louis is barely running late. Clifford is as energetic as ever, jumping around Louis's body, trying to climb him like he thinks he's a small pup, and Louis tries to open the front door. Yeah, yeah, get your food in a bit, you big drama queen. Louis whispers affectionately to him when he finally pushes the door open and they walk past a small reception area. It's a bit pretentious to refer to it as such, when really it's nothing more than an encounter with an old crappy computer, a bright yellow retro phone tucked in one corner and barely enough space behind it for Louis to sit down, though he does have a stool. The wall behind the reception has a framed photograph of the lighthouse hanging from it, one of the few decorative items Louis kept from the previous owner makes Louis laugh at the pretentiousness of the thought process that went into picking it and hanging it up every time he sees it, so he never took it down. The phone and computer are a different story, and speak more to Louis's laziness to change perfectly functioning equipment than anything else, but he supposes it adds the vintage charm to his establishment. Louis starts taking off his coat and he walks behind the living room, Clifford still following behind. Morning! Mrs. Jackson says happily from one of the brown leather sofas, making Louis jump in his skin just as he walks in. Mrs. Jackson, he yells, turning around with one hand clutched to his chest, the other trapped in his denim jacket hanging from his arm. Jesus, you gave me fright, he adds, taking the jacket fully off with his minimum clumsiness and immediately tugging his headphones off once he's done. Despite an aura of sternness, Mrs. Jackson doesn't seem offended by Louis's profanity. She smiles at him kindly, closing the book she was reading and pushing her glasses onto the top of her head. There's a discarded torch on her knees that seems to suggest she's been reading downstairs for a while, though she's abandoned now the sun has risen, illuminating the room in a soft glow. I'm sorry, my dear, I didn't mean to scare you, she replies, reaching down to pet Clifford when he approaches her to say hello. Mr. Jackson is still sleeping, Louis assumes, putting both his jacket and Clifford's leash back on the coat peg. Mrs. Jackson rolls her eyes. He'd sleep through an earthquake, that man. Honestly. She sounds fond more than anything else. I hope Clifford and I didn't wake you up this morning, Louis says, already mentally preparing himself to offer them a discount for the inconvenience when Mrs. Jackson lets out a loud and beautiful laugh. Unless you were the one snoring in our room. He'd think I'd be used to it after thirty years of marriage, but he still keeps me up. She rolls her eyes before continuing. But I have this book to finish before we leave anyway, so it sorted itself out, really. Louis eyes the mystery novel she's holding. It's one of the guest's favourites, and it's actually set on the island. Gives them a spooky companion to their visit. Louis always tries to leave a few copies lying around the building. You can always leave with it, Louis offers, gesturing towards the book. Last time he counted, he had at least five copies scattered around. There's definitely two in the reading nook on the top of the tower, and the other is in bookshelves that surround all four walls of the living room, except where the large window is letting the first ray of sunlight in. The room is more of a library than anything else, really, but Louis feels pretentious referring to it as such when guests are around. And common room makes it sound like a hostel. Not that Louis dislikes such establishments, but he's aiming for a more upmarket feel. So Louis calls his library a living room and kind of hates himself for being so anal about it all. Steal your book, Mrs. Jackson pretends to be shocked. My dear, I could never. Louis smiles at her deadpan delivery. You know our policy, he tells her. Take a book, leave a book. If you can't leave a book, I'm never too fussy. 
I don't have eyes on the back of my head, do I? It'd be fine if you accidentally left with it, Louis shrugs. I probably wouldn't even notice, he adds in an exaggerated whisper. You're too kind, Louis, Mrs. Jackson says, and it's not the first time Louis has received that type of compliment, but it's the first time someone has made it sound like a threat. People will take advantage, she adds warmingly. Louis smiles, trying not to look condescending. She's seen more of the world than he has. It's much longer to know the unkind ways men can treat each other, but she's a stranger on the island, and she doesn't know there's nothing to fear here. I think I'm going to be okay, he replies politely. But I can always lay breakfast if you want to give Mr. Jackson more time to sleep, and yourself more time to read, Louis says with a small wink. If you need more time to wash that jogging sink off, Louis, you only have to say so. There's no need to try and pretend that you're doing me a kindness, she teases without skipping a beat, pushing her glasses back onto her nose and opening the book again. She's very theatrical. Louis has noticed that in the past two weeks that the couple has been staying at the B&B. He finds himself strangely thinking he's going to miss her once they've gone. He knows it's not as simple as that, and part of it is fueled by the knowing edge that he's about to enter his winter exile. He always has mixed feelings about the way the world slows down and the solitude amplifies when everything freezes during the off-season. Still, she's funny and sharp. Louis appreciates the company of someone like that. Clifford is the best friend a man could offer, but he doesn't have much wit. Suddenly, the mischievous twinkle in her eyes disappears as she gives him a serious look. We know you do everything by yourself here, you know. It's a lot of work. Late breakfast isn't going to affect your trip advisor rating. Louis laughs. I appreciate that. I'll only be 15 minutes, though, and then I can get you started. I'm assuming you'll want the usuals? Mrs. Jackson smiles. Please. Now off you go. Feed that dog before he dies of starvation. Clifford jumps to attention when she gestures towards him, getting up from where he'd dropped himself on the fluffy white rug in the middle of the room. Right. Wouldn't want my child to go without, Louis agrees jokingly before clueing Clifford and leaving the room. As predicted, Louis feels a pang of loneliness hit once Mr. and Mrs. Jackson have checked out. He watches them leave hand in hand, trailing their luggage behind as they start the 15 minutes walk into town. From there, they'll probably make the mistake of grabbing a snack at Dunn's Grocers, thinking they'll need it for the two and a half hours journey on the Good Shepherd 4 back to Shetland. And even though they've made the trip to Fair Isle before, even though they experience the sea's uneasiness and the tiny boat's rocky journey, it's every tourist's mistake. Even those with steady stomachs who never get seasick. Next trip in, mostly with supplies and no passengers now that October is coming to an end. Roger, the small ferry's captain, will make fun of them for their green faces and unease. It happens every single time, but as long as they spend more money on the island and support their community, no one's going to warn them against it. Soon enough, Mr. and Mrs. Jackson will be back home in Lancashire, treasuring the memories of the adventure they've had in the Scottish edges. Louis sighs on his doorstep chuckling a little when Clifford headbutts him in the back of his thigh like maybe he's thinking he deserves more attention now that it's just going to be the two of them. Louis turns around and walks back inside the cottage, fingers drumming on the reception counter for a second before he lifts himself to the tip of his toes, curling his body over it to look at the shelf hidden from sight. It's a mess. There's no way around it. With various receipts and post-its scattered around between pens, two novels, and a tonic's caramel wafer wrapper right next to a rusty red and yellow Lipton tea tin where Louis hides himself his favourite snacks. He hums to himself before grabbing a black pen, pushing the wrappers around until he finally has a notepad. Come on Cliff, stop that. 
Louis mumbles when the dog tries to climb on the counter, the nails of his front paws clicking against the wood. He barks in response, but barely has time to react before Louis kindly pushes him down. None of that. You know better, he says sternly, putting the pen back behind his right ear and dropping the notepad in the back pocket of his jeans. Someone else might have waited longer than one second after their last guest leaving, before starting an annual inspection of needed repairs and improvements all over the building. But Louis, as if he dares think so himself, is not most people. He has maybe four or five months to make sure the cottage and the tower are in top shape for the next season. His first winter on Fair Isle, Louis had confidently made the mistake to assume he would only need a few weeks to get everything in order for the next influx of tourists. He had rested, more than any self-employed person should, and spent a couple of months back in Yorkshire with his family, and he'd left it all for the month of March, and March Madness it had been. Louis still thinks of it with a burning shame. If it hadn't have been for the kindness of his neighbours, Louis would never would have pulled it off. Nowadays he knows better. He stays on the island, first of all, keeping an eye out for the property he rents from the National Trust, and he never pushes back any task if he can help it. There's nothing worse he could imagine than having to bother the crofters of Fair Isle again for more help. Even though he'd labelled them all as friends rather than neighbours now, it would still be much more embarrassing to need them now after he has so many years of managing the B&B under his belt. So Louis walks back to the front door, looking down at the red and white jumper he's got on, wrinkling his nose as he mentally debates whether he should grab one of his jackets before deciding it wasn't that cold outside and that his walk around shouldn't take that long anyways. He opens the cottage door, taking one step forward to get out while licking his lower lip when a strong gust of wind makes him stumble backwards. He chuckles a little, trying again with Clifford trailing after him. Once he's outside the building, he starts circling the property, reaching in his back pocket for the notepad to write WHITE PAINT in capital letters before underlining it. The exterior of the cottage truly needs a fresh coat. Thankfully, the lighthouse itself was dealt with a couple of years prior, an expensive refurbishment that had been financed by the National Trust of Scotland, so Lou doesn't have to worry about the tower. He shivers a little, regretting his life choices but stubbornly continuing the inspection while swearing under his breath every time the wind whistles, the cold air teasing the back of his neck. He spends a long time inspecting each window in the ground floor, making sure there's no draught. He suspects he might have to fix the libraries and he adds it to the list with a small question mark next to it before going back inside to carefully check each room, first the common room areas downstairs, then the kitchen, before moving on to the bedrooms on the first floor in each of their en-suites. Soon enough, Afternoon morphs into evening, and with it, the list grows and grows. A few days later, Louis is coming back from the village with an armful of supplies, mostly paint for the outside of the cottage, with Clifford walking a few steps ahead of him on the path. It's not a road, not really, more like a small muddy footpath large enough for two, where the grass has been walked on so much there's nothing left of it, and that connects the lighthouse to the main road that goes through the village and up the north side of the island. Not very glamorous, but the fields of vibrant green, the cliffs, and the sea ahead more than make up for the lack of access to the B&B by car. Only the most high-maintenance of guests usually complain about it. And by the time they leave, they've normally been so charmed by the picturesque village and the breathtaking seaside views that they've forgotten all about the lack of amenities. Louis is only a couple minutes away when he notices an unfamiliar figure in the distance, hovering near the cottage entrance. Louis stops in his tracks readjusting the large tote bag filled with paint cans that are digging painfully in his shoulder with one hand, and the other busy carrying a potted plant that he perched on a whim, thinking it would brighten his bedroom. Louis squints before snapping his finger to stop Clifford from trotting along, 
calling him back so they can take a moment to observe the stranger unnoticed. Tall, with an oversized olive green jacket engulfing his slim frame, the man is pacing in front of the door, only one strap of his large backpack on his shoulder. He's jittery. Even from afar, Louis can see the way he keeps fiddling, with the straps of his bag one second, then with the jacket that keeps opening up with every gust of wind the next. He doesn't zip it up. He just starts playing with a black scarf as he keeps walking one length of the cottage before turning around and doing it again. Then he starts playing with the straps of the backpack again. If Louis was a mistrustful person, he'd find him suspicious. As it is, he's mostly intrigued. Doesn't look like our regular backpackers are. Louis whispers towards Cliff before starting to walk again. He can't help but feel a bit confused. If his hands weren't occupied, he'd grab his phone to make sure he doesn't have a missed text from Roger about dropping new visitors on the island with a shipment, or even someone from the Dunn family. As owners of the grocer's slash general store, they're normally the first to know about any visitors. News travels fast on the island, and gossip usually goes through 60 people who permanently live on Fair Isle in less than 30 minutes. 10 if the news is particularly juicy. Between whispers, phone calls and texts, no one is left out of the loop. Theirs is not a land of mystery. No matter how many tourists operate under the flawed romantic notion of outlandish isolation associated with the island lifestyle. Oh, they're isolated for sure, cut off from the rest of the world, but certainly not from each other. Louis was only in town twenty minutes ago. There can only be one reason why he hasn't been warned. This man has slipped through the cracks and managed to reach Fair Isle unnoticed. That's certainly a first. Newcomers, visitors, tourists, friends and family of the local. No one set foot on Pharaoh without everybody knowing it. Immediately. If he's looking for shelter, as Louis strongly suspects that he is, there are only three options on the entire island. The South Lighthouse B&B that Louis proudly calls his own, one small B&B in the village with more affordable prices, and a hotel on the northern tip of the island. Since the entire population lives in the village down south, though, most tourists stay in the area, apart from a few hiker, photographers and other outdoors enthusiasts who don't mind abandoning whatever there is of civilization on the island during their stay. Realistically though, since most tourists don't venture up north to sleep, there are only two viable options for someone in need of a room. If someone is looking for one, Louis is usually alerted, especially during the drought, the winter months when tourism dies down and every new visitor is an invaluable potential source of income. If the stranger had been seen, Louis would know. So the pacing man managed to reach Fair Isle and the lighthouse outside of the village, completely unseen. That's different. Hey, Louis calls out as casually as possible once he's only about ten steps away from the door. The stranger startles, taking a step away from the living room's window he was trying to peep into before turning around to face Louis. Clifford barks, and for one second, Louis thinks he might have to reprimand him, what with the way the man's eyes widen and he takes a small step back like maybe he's afraid. His face moves quickly into a neutral expression and he extends a hand towards Louis's dog, silently saying hello. Clifford certainly doesn't need to be invited in twice and suddenly he's crowding into the man's face like the badly behaving heathen that Louis proudly raised. Thankfully, Clifford doesn't go for any of his most appalling habits, like thinking he's still a tiny puppy and jumping on people, almost killing them in the process. He just headbutts the newcomer in the leg, saying hello in the best way he knows how. He's so strong the man does stumble a little backward, but all in all it could be worse. Hey, the man whispers, voice surprisingly deep while Clifford noses at his hands, starting to lick his long fingers after a few seconds. 
Louis is so busy looking at the way the man seems deeply unsettled despite not looking uncomfortable under Clifford's attention that he doesn't realise he's being scrutinised himself. When he raises his head again, he's surprised to find deep green eyes focus on his face. Sorry? Louis says, automatically assuming he's missed something that the stranger had said. He's attractive, Louis notices distantly, taking the pink full lips and tall lanky frame. The man smiles, seemingly without thinking about it, a cold, polite thing that doesn't reach his eyes and that Louis hates automatically. He looks sad. I just said hey. Oh yeah, hey, I said that before, right? Louis jokes. There's something about the unblinking eyes staring at him that leave him undoubtedly perplexed. Can I help you? He still asks, smiling warmly and trying to put the man at ease. He points at the black bag on his shoulder. You looking for a room? The man nods slowly, eyes going up to the sign above the cottage door, introducing the B&B. Huh, yeah. Do you work here? He asks, pointing at the sign. Louis smiles proudly. Yeah, I'm the owner. I can get you sorted. He replies, approaching the door. Clifford, of course, sees the movement and gets in the way, excited to get home. Come on, Cliff, Louis laughs, while trying to push him away with his leg while reaching inside his jacket for his keys. He feels a small pressure on his arm, and when he looks to his right, his new customer's hand is resting on his bicep. I can hold that for you if that helps, he offers, gesturing towards the potted English ivy. Oh, cheers, that'd be brilliant, Louis replies, dropping the plant in the man's arms without hesitation. Sorry for making you work on your first day, he jokes as he finally manages to find his keys. I promise, I don't usually have guests do all the work, he adds, twisting the key and pushing the cottage door open. The man remains eerily quiet. Come in, come in, Louis says, trying to push Clifford towards the living room with an empty promise of a treat. Off you go, big baby. Let me deal with this. What's his name? Louis closes the living room door behind Clifford before walking around the reception counter, squeezing himself into the small space and dropping his tote back on the floor with a loud clang. Clifford? He replies, with what he knows is too sappy of a smile. He can't help it. He loves his big dumb dog. And I'm Louis, he says, as he takes off his denim jacket, nervously smoothing the bottom of the white and blue Norwegian padded jumper he's got on. It's a habit he can't quite get rid of, though he's not fully sure why he feels anxious all of a sudden. You're not Scottish, the man notes, instead of offering his name, putting the plant on the right corner of the counter, opposite of Louis's embarrassing clutter. Well spotted, Louis teases, grabbing the yellow phone from the top of the counter and putting it on the hidden shelf on his side to make some space. He moves the mouse of the dinosaur he doesn't dare call a computer out loud where people would hear to wake the beast up. Oh, please feel free to take your coat off and drop your bag. It must be heavy. The man nods, taking the black backpack off and carefully putting up against the counter. Sorry, I, I didn't mean to sound rude. I was just surprised. This place is... I just thought it'd mostly be a small Scottish community, is all. Louis nods. It's a common mistake. You weren't rude at all. Most people react the same. We're a wildly diverse community, he says sarcastically. The man snorts. Right. Oi! It's true. You've even got gays, Louis says, jokingly pointing at himself. He's not usually in the business of outing himself to guests, but he can't help but use the opportunity to make fun of their ridiculously isolated, ridiculously white, and ridiculously British community. He was the most exciting new local the island had in years when he first moved, and he's a white British male. Surprisingly, that's what makes the hint of a real smile appear on the stranger's face. It's just the uplift of the corner of his mouth, but 
my mistake. Then I can see I've had some flawed, preconceived notions. They stare at each other in silence for a beat, then two. So, Louis says, drumming his fingers against the counter, and it becomes quite apparent that he's going to have to take charge, he speaks again. You're looking for a room? He says, almost a question even though they've already established that very fact. Yes, please. Okay, Louis nods a bit flabbergasted at the man's unwillingness to elaborate. Then he opens the reservation system with two clicks. Well, autumn's always quiet on the island, so you've definitely got some options in terms of room sizes and prices. How long do you think you're staying? It's okay if you don't know, I know most backpackers have kind of a day-to-day approach to travel, and as I said, it's usually empty from October to the end of March, so if you want to book a couple of nights and reevaluate, that's completely fine. You're empty until the end of March? Huh, yeah, usually. The stranger nods, seeming to himself. Yeah, that works, he whispers before refocusing his eyes on Louis. Can I rent a room until mid-March? At first, Louis thinks it's a joke. Mid-March? He exclaims. Please, the man says, not a hint of mischief in his face. What are you going to do here on Fair Isle until mid-March, mate? Louis asks with a small incredulous laugh. Not that I'm judging, he adds quickly when he sees the way the stranger tightens his jaw, clearly uncomfortable. I just need a break. A holiday, he replies, and there's honest desperation in his green eyes that takes Louis by surprise. Like maybe he thinks he's going to be turned away now and it's an unbearable thought. Louis nods, too enthusiastically before speaking again. Yeah, of course, it's just, you know, most people pick sunny places, crowded beaches and stuff. I've had enough of crowded sunny places, thank you. The man mumbles, head bowed towards the floor. With his face almost certainly hidden, Louis can still see the way his defined eyebrows raise sarcastically on the thank you. Here's fine, he finally says, looking back into Louis' eyes. Here's perfect. If I can? This should raise so many red flags, yet Louis can't find it in himself to be wary or suspicious. There's so much he should ask, so much he wants to ask, but he knows better. He can't. Not yet. So he smiles kindly instead. Of course. As I said, plenty of vacancies to choose from. All rooms of en-suites. We've got a few double beds. A couple of queens and one king in the master bedroom. Prices vary mostly with the size of the bed. And the view, of course. The rooms without a view of the cliffs are less expensive. But since you're staying so long, we can sort something out. I can give you a deal or something. Normal rates include breakfast. Duh. Louis adds, widening his eyes comically. Bed and breakfast, you know? But there's extra fees if you want all three meals included. It's an option. If not, I guess we can work something out for you to use a kitchen. There's pretty much only one bakery slash coffee shop in the village if you'd prefer that. Louis stops when the man raises a hand to silence him. Just give me the most expensive room, please, and full price on all meals and stuff. Least I can do is pay the proper fee if I'm going to be here for four months. Louis is about to open his mouth to protest when the stranger shakes his head and disappears from the view. Louis leans over the counter in time to see him zip his backpack pocket again before straightening up and dropping an open envelope full of cash on the counter. I know it's common practice to pay a deposit and then the rest upon departure, but is it alright if I pay everything up front? Louis gulps. That's a lot of money. Yup, he replies, popping the pee and looking back down to the computer screen to book the master bedroom. Until March 15th works for you? He asks 
Tie with your feelings on the customer form when he gets a nod back. And what name should I put this under? Harry. My name's Harry. Louis types the first name, trying not to feel uneasy at the fact that it's all Harry seems willing to say. Any last name that goes with that? Any last name that goes with yours? Harry replies. Maybe it's a trust thing, Louis speculates, observing the way he's still fidgeting. He looks boyish somehow, in the cold autumn light coming in from the window next to the front door. Tomlinson, Louis offers, hoping it'll put Harry at ease. Harry huffs and it almost sounds like a laugh. Clifford Tomlinson, he says. It's a great name. Thanks, I thought of it myself. It's twist, Harry says, and the word seems unfamiliar in his mouth. Harry twist. Great, Louis says, typing it down, ignoring the little voice in the back of his head, telling him it's probably a fake name, that maybe he should worry. Well, let's get this payment sorted, and then I'll show you around. It takes them about ten minutes to get everything sorted, but soon enough, Harry's in possession of his room key. He's bending down to grab his bag. He's probably planning on going straight to his room, when Louis stops him by placing a hand on his shoulder. You leave that here for a bit, he says, trying not to make it sound like an order. It's just, I can show you around the cottage and the tower first. That way you'll know where everything is and stuff. Oh, Harry says quietly, stopping midway down. He straightens up, putting his hands in the pocket of his oversized jacket a bit awkwardly, letting Louis have a furtive peek at a tattooed wrist he somehow hadn't noticed before. Sure, Harry shrugs. Makes sense. He looks like he wants to be left alone. Seems tired, despite the lack of bags under his eyes. It's in his posture and the way he smiles with his mouth, but not with his eyes. Not for the first time, Louis wonders what on earth happened to this man. This boy, really, for him to wash up on the distant shore of their small corner of the earth with pockets full of cash and what clearly seems like a heavy heart. It won't take much of your time, I promise, Louis blurts out, almost an apology. Then I'll give you the Wi-Fi password and I'll leave you to it. Harry doesn't smile, but his posture seems to relax. It's fine, he says, taking one hand away from his pocket to start taking his scarf off. I'd like a tour, actually. He puts the scarf on top of his backpack before taking a step away from it, his van sliding wetly against the floor, little pieces of grass stuck to the sole. And I don't need the password. I don't have a laptop with me, so... Oh, well, if you need a computer at some point, you can borrow mine. No problem. Feel free to ask. Harry's eyes turn slowly to the monitor sitting proudly on the counter, the rest of his body entirely immobile. Then he winces. <laughs> Not that one! Louis laughs, rubbing two fingers against his beard. It can barely run the reservation system on a good day, let alone any web pages. I meant my laptop. I, I won't need it, but thanks. Louis eyes him for a second before shrugging. There's always a computer at the baker if you'd be more comfortable, he says, finally walking around the counter with his jacket in his hand. It's kind of a half bakery, half internet cafe, really. Mrs. Clark lets anyone use a computer as long as you've purchased something. She's really lovely and her pastries are to die for. Louis eyes the plant on the counter for a second. Do you think this looks nicer? It's not too crowded, is it? He twists the pot a smidge, biting his lower lip of the pond, is it? Pardon? Harry asks. The plant. I was going to put it in my bedroom, but it kind of looks nice here, right? Harry looks at the plant for a moment, widening his eyes with incredulity. Louis can't help but feel a swind of satisfaction at succeeding in making him react with more than a heavily controlled micro-expression. Huh. Harry hesitates before shrugging. It looks... pretty? Right, I'll leave it here for now, I suppose. I can always move it later, Louis says, mostly to himself as he leads the way towards the living room. 
Cliff is probably going to jump on you. He warned over his shoulder before opening the door. Sorry about that. It's okay, Harry replies, following Louis inside the room. Clifford doesn't even twitch, comfortable in his spot on the rug where he's sleeping soundly. Or not, Louis deadpans, taking in the black curly blob. Anyway, this is the living room slash library, he explains, gesturing vaguely towards the sturdy wooden bookcases pressed against every wall. Apart from the top of the tower, this is probably the comfiest room on the property. Harry hums, walking over to the creaky wooden floor to get the fireplace. He lets his index trail against the top, turning his head sideways to read the titles of the books clumsily stacked on the shelves over it. Apart from the white rug and the three brown leather sofas, there's only a big antique chest decorating the room. The star of the show are the books and the fireplace, as well as the view. There's a red cushion on the windowsill, strategically placed there by Louis to encourage people to sit down there to read during the summer when the reading nook gets too crowded. This... this is lovely, Harry says turning around to face Louis. He sounds sincere and almost impressed. Not for the first time, Louis wonders what on earth brought this man here. You have a big book selection. That fireplace is great. His eyes widen earnestly as he takes in the room. I'm a bit surprised, he admits. And you haven't seen the best bits yet, Louis teases as he starts moving towards the exit, taking a second to hang his denim jacket next to Clifford's leash on the coat peg. Did you bring all those books with you when you moved here? Harry asks, too nonchalant not to actually be curious as he grabs one of them off the shelf and starts flipping through it. Are they yours? Louis laughs, leaning against one of the bookcases next to the door. He crosses his left leg over the right, folding his arms across his chest. Nah, I mean, don't get me wrong, I always liked reading, but I didn't start loving it until I moved here. You might be surprised to learn that there isn't much to do here to entertain yourself. Most of these came from guests. Lost and found, Harry guesses without looking up from what Louis thinks is a biography in American Crime Lord. A 20-year-old backpacker left his entire collection of mafia-related fiction and non-fiction at the lighthouse a few summers ago in exchange for three British thrillers Louis had bought for 60p in a charity shop in Inverness. Not exactly. Well, I suppose it started that way, Louis admits. There was only one bookshelf in this room at first, and it wasn't even full. It only had a few of my own books and what previous owners had left behind when they moved out. It wasn't much, but I liked the idea of leaving them in one of the shared spaces so people could borrow one during their holidays, you know? I suppose guests liked the idea of having some of them because they started leaving their own books to add to the collection if they finished reading them here. Some of them were just forgotten in bedrooms or in the reading nook. I'll show you soon, Louis adds mysteriously when Harry's head snaps up at the words reading nook, deeply curious. Others were swapped. Swapped? Harry asks, taking a step forward. What does that mean? Take a book, leave a book? If people want to leave with a book they haven't finished, they can just swap it for one of their own. I don't mind. As long as I've got options for everyone, I'm not actually fussed about which books I own. Besides, I'm always checking second-hand bookshops whenever I'm on the mainland, and so do most of the other residents. Harry looks down at the book still in his hand, then bites his lower lip. The locals buy books for you, he asks, before passing a hand through his short hair messing it up even further. Some strands are curling against his temple in a way that makes Louis think it must look gorgeous when it's longer. Louis shrugs. Well, yeah, I mean, it's for themselves too. It's not an official library on Fair Isle, you know, so everyone kind of shares mine. That's, that's actually really lovely. Louis nods and smiles, eyes crinkling. Yeah, it really is. He moves away from the bookcase, holding his hand out for Harry to give him the book. Then he puts it back to the closest shelf. 
There's absolutely no order in here, so don't worry about putting stuff back where it belongs. We thrive on chaos here. Cliff especially, Louis jokes, pointing at his sleeping, peaceful dog. Oh, before I forget, he adds, pointing at the chest next to Clifford. This antique is full of wall jumpers available to guests to just use, so please feel free to borrow whatever. It gets really cold at night with the power off. There's battery-operated heaters in every bedroom, so you should be fine, but still, don't be shy. They're all clean, I swear. Harry's eyes widen at the words power off, and they stay that way until Louis finishes his speech, his body rooted in the place near the exit. With the power off, he repeats, like what Louis said doesn't make any sense. Louis's eyes widen in turn at the sight of tremor in Harry's voice. Oh dear. You do know there's no electricity on Fair Isle between half past seven at night and seven in the morning, right? Louis asks, suddenly pushing and a bit nervous. This man is strange, sure, and Louis isn't sure if he can fully trust him yet, but with the promise of four months of his most expensive room being rented during winter, the last thing he wants is for this piece of information to make Harry run for it. Harry's mouth opens and closes and he gulps visibly. Right, he says, blinking his confusion away. Right, of course, I, I, I suppose I must have forgotten. Forgotten? It's, it's okay, Harry says, looking more certain now as he's getting used to the idea. It just slipped my mind, he insists. Thank you for telling me about the jumpers, it's a really good idea. You're clearly prepared for every eventuality. Louis stares at him for a bit before answering. I certainly try, he finally settles for, before gesturing towards the door. Moving on? Harry nods, following back into the corridor, then into the next room, which Louis quickly introduces as the dining room. There's not much that's interesting here, to be honest, Louis explains as he has Harry have a look around. Two big windows facing the cliffs with about a dozen mismatched square tables and chairs. The space is a mix between a restaurant and a fine Millie dining room. The most interesting piece of furniture in the room is the upright piano that Louis almost never plays but couldn't bear to get rid of when the previous owner didn't bother to leave it. Each table is adorned with a handwritten wine slash drinks list and right next to the door there's a chalkboard standing sign where Louis usually writes down the weekly menu. He explains so quickly to his guest, pointing at the blank sign while Harry approaches one of the tables and starts fiddling with the list on it. Basically, I'd normally have a fixed menu planned, and if people are interested in eating in, I'd add it to their bill. But since you're staying so long and you've already paid for the food, it doesn't have to be strictly planned. We can always discuss the menus and everything, pick stuff together. There's a long moment of silence where he usually just looks at Harry, who is seemingly lost in thought, his thumb rubbing against the piece of paper nestled between the salt and pepper shakers. Harry? Louis finally asks, uncertainly. Is it all right if we play by ear for the weekly menus? Huh? Harry says, dropping the wine list. He reaches for his own wrist, rubbing it with his thumb for a few seconds before snapping a rubbing band. Louis hadn't even noticed he was wearing against his skin. Yeah, yeah, he replies, clearly not knowing what Louis said. It's fine. Okay, Louis agrees, choosing not to push it. If Harry's not in the mood to talk or think that far ahead, it's fine. Louis can sort it out by himself. He usually does, and no guest has ever complained about his food, even though it's not world-class. Let's skip the kitchen, Louis declares, feeling like maybe Harry is getting tired of this, of him, and wants the tour to be over as quickly as possible. All you need to know is that it could give most flats a run for their money in terms of being tiny and cramped, Louis explains as he leads Harry outside the dining room. 
They walk along the corridor in silence until they walk past the doors that hides the stairs leading to the basement. Downstairs is mostly storage, like canned food and stuff like that, alcohol and anything that doesn't really need to be chilled, basically. There's also where the washing machine as well as for whenever you need it, so soap and everything is downstairs too, so feel free to use whatever you need. Harry hums along as they finally reach the doors leading to the annex corridor in the next building. So this actually used to be two buildings, Louis explains, pushing the door open and walking into the corridor. The cottage and then the actual lighthouse building where the keeper used to stay. They only built the annex linking the two when the buildings were first converted into a bed and breakfast back in the 80s, so the guests wouldn't have to brave the weather to get the money shot, you know? Louis looks over his shoulder just in time to catch Harry furrowing his eyebrows. The top of the tower, he explains, with a bit more flair and drama than necessary, pushing the door next to the building open with his hip. He lets Harry walk in first. It's the spot with the best view, after all. This door jams a little sometimes, so don't be afraid to give it a bit of a shove, all right? He adds, following along. The corridor is old and drafty and pretty much awful and could probably do with some renovations. He points to the door behind his thumb over his shoulder. But hey, at least if it rains, you're not going to get stuck outside, you know? I sleep here, by the way, he says when they walk past his bedroom door to get to the bottom of the metal spiral staircase. You'll mostly have the cottage yourself at night, unless other customers show up, but yeah, if there's an emergency or anything like that, this is where you can find me. Okay, Harry nods, docile. Are we going up there? He asks, pointing towards the top of the tower. Of course we're going up there, Louis smiles widely. After you, he says a bit mischievously. It's always the best bit, he figures. The way people's face just illuminate with delight when they finally reach the top. Today's such a nice day as well. Not a cloud in sight or any trace of fog. Just clear blue skies and what Louis knows is an incredible view of the cliffs and the water beyond. Harry doesn't need to be told twice. He starts taking the stairs two at a time immediately, clearly unbothered by the fact that they're old and they're creaky and they're spiralling. Louis, who has had to convince more than one guest that they are, in fact, perfectly safe, can't help but feel surprised by Harry's eagerness, his lack of fear. He didn't even hesitate for one second, and Louis figures this is probably why he's here at all. For that unparalleled view up there, that even after years of living on Fair Isle, Louis just can't get sick of. At the top, the stairs emerge on the side of the lantern room, right in front of the door that leads outside to the gallery deck, and Louis smiles to himself when Harry stops as he reaches it, a small gasp escaping his lips as he let go of the copper railing. Louis lets him have a moment, staring through the glass panels at the breathtaking view of the cliffs before he carefully presses his knuckles into Harry's back to encourage him to move forward into the room. Harry doesn't say anything, just steps ahead, staring at the curved wooden bench that surrounds them, long enough to follow almost the entire circumference of the tower. The top of the bench is made of white cushion seats, ensuring it's actually cosy and a comfortable place to snuggle with a book or a camera or a lover. The floor is obviously made of concrete, which Louis has always hated, but as he looks down at the fluffy white rug in the middle of the room that matches the one in the library, he can't help but feel like he did a good job hiding the reality and discomforts of the lantern room. On it stands proudly a dark wooden chest that mostly serves as a coffee table, with a few discarded books and magazines permanently and effortlessly thrown on it. Louis winces with embarrassment when he notices the white enamel mug of tea he forgot on the table a few days prior. Cute, Harry comments pointing at the rainbow on it. Louis blushes, grabbing the mug. It's usually much tidier, he declares. Wasn't really expecting. He trails off, their eyes meeting silently. Harry's clouded with something that might be mistrust or anxiety. 
Well, anyone, really, Louis admits, and Harry's mouth tightens in what no one would call a smile, but the shadow in his eyes disappears. This place is incredible, he whispers. Money shot, Louis agrees with a smug smile. Yeah, Harry nods. He takes a step forward before kneeling on the bench, pressing his nose against the window and taking in the cliffs and the sea, the empty horizon ahead. He seems almost hypnotised. So still, Louis would think him asleep if his eyes weren't wide open, unable to look away. The wind whistles, Louis's best friend, and he smiles as Harry inhales and exhales deeply. This is going to be perfect, he whispers to himself against the glass, almost like a prayer. Perfect for what, Louis can't help but wonder, but he forces himself to stay silent. There will be time for that later if Harry wishes to share, but for now, Louis knows there's no point in hounding him for answers. Finally, after a couple of minutes of contemplation, Harry gets up from the bench and starts playing with the elastic band on his wrist. He barely seems to notice he's doing it, the movement absent-minded and distracted as he looks around the lantern room silently. His green eyes fall onto the tall lamp tucked at the end of the bench, and his lips turn up in the corner at the sight. "'What's the point of that if there's no power at night?' he asks, a bit cheeky. Louis raises an eyebrow at him. "'Oh, trust me, you'll need it in the middle of January when you want to come up here to read and the sun sets at three o'clock, or it doesn't rise until past nine. It's dead useful.' And if you actually do want to come up here during your time off the grid, there are plenty of torches in there, Louis says, giving the chest a small kick with his brown boot. And in the living room. Well, the library, I mean. And in the bedrooms, and pretty much everywhere else in the B&B, he finishes with a small laugh. Torches are an essential part of life on Fair Isle. There's no denying it. Louis is pretty sure most of his jackets and coats have at least one in one of them pockets, just in case. He leaves them around every common room, Hell, Louis even ended up hiding extra ones under the sink of every ensuite a few years back just in case. Some inns or hotels have a copy of the Bible in the nightstands. Louis's place has extra batteries. Harry nods. That's, uh, that's good to know. He pauses before pointing at the chest. Any jumpers in there as well? He asks, and Louis can't quite figure out if he's meant to be teasing or not. A few, Louis decides to reply seriously. Mostly blankets, though. It gets quite cold up here, especially if you want to go out on the deck. Louis smirks. I don't know if you hear it, but it gets really windy here. Harry shrugs. I hadn't noticed. He deadpans, making Louis snot. Do you want to see outside? He offers, pointing at the door leading to what many tourists jokingly refer to as Louis's balcony. Harry shakes his head. Maybe later, he offers. I'm a bit exhausted and kind of jet-lagged. Jet-lagged? Louis can't help but ask as he leads the way back downstairs, his dirty mug clenched tightly between his fingers. Harry remains silent behind him, a tense looming presence against Louis's back as they spiral back to the ground floor. Sorry, Louis finally mumbles when the silence becomes unbearable, which seems to be about five seconds after he's asked a completely inappropriate question. It's none of my business. I shouldn't have asked. No, I... sorry, Harry says before clearing the throat. Um, I just, um, I don't like talking about myself. He pauses before adding, these days, in a whisper. Feels like I've done enough of that for a lifetime already. Oh, Louis replies, not really understanding. He doesn't push, though. Doesn't really see the point when Harry is establishing such clear boundaries. Up until a few days ago, I was in L.A. for, Harry hesitates, for work and... And now I'm here, so I'm 
still adjusting. And that does take Louis by surprise. While Harry doesn't look like the classic backpackers he usually hosts and he clearly isn't lacking money, he certainly doesn't look like the kind of man who jets off to the US for work. Louis tries to picture him in a boring suit sipping wine in business class and he can't help but want to frown at the image. No, it doesn't seem right. They've reached the bottom of the stairs by now and when Louis turns around to face Harry, he can't help but feel a sudden twinge of sadness at the way he's curled upon himself, trying to hide his face in a nonchalant way. Harry looks small, even though he's a tiny bit taller than Louis, made taller even by the fact that he's on the last step while Louis is back on the floor. And yet, he's drowning in his oversized coat, eclipsed by an excess of olive green fabric. He's wearing washed blue jeans and a plain cream jumper underneath, everything about him screaming that he doesn't want to be noticed, doesn't want to be looked at. You don't have to tell me, Louis declares sincerely, surprising himself to find that he actually means it. You don't have to explain yourself. He might have come in looking for a little worse for wear, might have seemed a little shady, but Louis can't help but feel the guy needs a break. Besides, Louis is used to living with the unknown, the uncertainty. It's what winter on Fair Isle is made of. Nothing can be predicted, and it doesn't scare Louis. They walk back to the reception in silence. Not quite a heavy one, yet it's not comfortable either. Harry follows him with his hands buried deep in his pockets, his head hung low, and every time Louis turns around to check he's maybe still there, he gets the feeling that Harry regrets speaking up, like maybe what he told Louis was a secret and he didn't mean to share. Louis isn't sure where the feeling is coming from. Maybe it's the way Harry said, hasn't said a word since, or the way he won't look at Louis anymore. Either way, he does his best to ignore it, and once they reach the reception area, he grabs Harry's bag before he can protest. Please follow me. Louis declares, pointing to the creaky staircase to the right of the entrance. The building clearly wasn't designed with the B&B in mind, and there's only a tiny amount of space between the reception desk and the wall to get to the staircase. It's always a bit of an issue, but despite many brainstorming sessions, there truly is no better space than the entryway for the reception. As it is, Louis very carefully walks past the desk, keeping in mind the fact that he'd just added a plant to his decor as he carries Harry's bag. Suddenly, as he climbs up the stairs, Louis finds the silence a hint unbearable and he starts babbling about on the island, giving Harry some random information about life in such a remote place. He's in the middle of a passionate rant about the application process to move into the available property when they reach Harry's bedroom. Here we are, Louis says, dropping the subject as he puts Harry's bag on the floor next to the door. Still got your keys? He jokes. His smile drops a little when he realises Harry's eyes are confused and he stares at the closed door. The National Trust of Scotland owns this island, he asks, a sharp frown line digging into his forehead, like maybe what Louis has been saying is a puzzle he needs to sort out. Louis grins. Yeah, do you not know that? He pauses, looking Harry up and down slowly. Did you not research this place before you picked us for your... Louis hesitates, words like holiday on the tip of his tongue. It's what Harry used earlier, but it didn't seem quite right. Your retreat? He finally settles for. The way Harry's body stiffens slightly confirms it. He shrugs, looking down. Not really, he admits. Just googled. Most remote place in the UK, to be honest, and this was the result. Louis smiles a little sadly at the sight of this tall man in the shadow clearly hanging over his head. Yeah, he agrees, voice more raspy than usual. He clears his throat. That's us. Harry smiles, polite as he fiddles with the room key. 
You really wanted to be far away, huh? Louis comments gently. Harry stops moving, stops playing with the keys, and he looks back up, straight into Louis's eyes. Is that what you wanted? He asks, and on someone else's lips it would sound accusatory. Louis has many distant relatives who would have thought similarly and have told him off for it. And so he's intimately familiar with the way his self-imposed exile could be perceived. Is that why you left England and moved here? Because you wanted to be far away. It almost sounds like he's asking permission to feel this way. Like he needs someone to understand and relate. Like he's the loneliest person in the world who came to the loneliest place in the world to fix it. It's almost enough to make Louis lie, to make him agree with Harry, to make him feel better. No, he says softly. I wasn't running away from home. I was running towards it. Harry's eyelids flutter as he looks back down for a second. I understand. He turns slightly to face his bedroom door, pushing the key in his lock and turning it. Once the door is open, he reaches down to grab his bag, putting one strap over his shoulder and giving Louis a side glance. I didn't want to be really far away, he admits softly. I needed it. Then he vanishes into his room. The rest of the day, Louis barely notices he has a guest at all. Harry stays firmly locked in his bedroom, a silent but nonetheless impossible to ignore presence, not making a peep as afternoon morphs into evening. More than once, Louis stops what he's working on to strain an ear towards Harry's side of the building, trying to catch any sign of life from the now-rented bedroom. Yet there's nothing. It's like Harry isn't there at all, like maybe Louis made him up in a moment of weakness when he was budgeting and worrying about the low season, but the stack of bills in the till doesn't lie. Nor does Harry's blocky signature at the bottom of the room rental contract. Despite Harry's discretion, Louis can't stop his brain from circling back to the tall and effaced stranger in need of a break who has unexpectedly entered his and Clifford's life. He's somewhere in between a puzzle and a mystery, someone Louis has a hitch to understand to get to know. Around six o'clock, despite no signs that Harry is getting restless, Louis abandons his to-do list and enters the kitchen to get their tea ready. He puts on a Spotify playlist curated by his elder sister, a mixture of oldies and recent tunes, most of which by artists he couldn't name if he was paid handsomely to, before starting to cook dinner for two. Quickly, while quietly humming to himself, he prepares an easy chicken casserole recipe that barely takes any effort, but usually reaps tons of compliments from his guests. Once the meal is ready, Louis spends a few minutes debating whether to bother Harry about it or not, before deciding to settle down on the table in the corner of the kitchen, big enough for only two and pushed against the window, where he usually eats when the B&B is full or his guests want privacy. He eats his half of the meal first without guilt, telling himself Harry never said he was hungry or asked about the usual meal times anyway. Then he takes care of the dishes, checking the time on his phone every once in a while, wondering if he should knock on his guest's door or not. On one hand, Harry would probably come to him if he were feeling hungry. Louis did say he was available and he prepaid for his meals after all. He's a grown man. Louis doesn't need to hold his hand or force feed him. On the other hand, Louis does feel responsible for feeding him. But the clock ticks and Louis cleans up the kitchen and suddenly it's past nine o'clock and there's still no sign of Harry. Finally, at half past nine, Louis grabs a yellow sticky note from behind the reception desk before making his way upstairs scrolling a messy message and stricking it to Harry's bedroom door. There's leftovers chickens for you in the fridge in the blue bowl. Microwave doesn't work past 11.30 though. Good night. Then, Lou grabs a book from the library and squeezes it in his back pocket of his jeans before making his way to the tower with a steaming cuppa, Clifford on his heels, happily expecting a late night cuddle.
And that was Chapter 1 of Tide Tide Sea by Media Hall, an archive of our own.